EMS One Academy, a training solution designed for EMS chiefs, offers more than 200 courses and 250 hours of continuing education. Our modern learning solution includes flexible reporting capabilities and features to upload agency-specific courses and track credentials for recertification. Easily streamline daily administrative workflow with EMS One Academy. Start your free trial. Visit www.emsoneacademy.com slash inside EMS. Well, it's that time of the week again to go inside EMS. I'm your host, Chris Subalero, and with me always is my friend. It's all about that Grayson, about that Grayson, about that Grayson, Kelly Grayson. Kelly? No Subalero, no Subalero. <laughs> nice, nice. Oh, too. man, it's... Uh, yeah, it just doesn't have the same uh, same ring as, as when Megan Trainer sings it. Oh, uh, man, but uh, I think my legs look better. Uh, no, Megan, Megan she, she's right. She's all about that, that bass. Um, she, she's got curves where they ought to be. Um, but, hey, that's that's neither here nor there. Um, how you been, man? Man, you know, living life, paying bills, you know, it's all about uh, life, love, and the pursuit of happiness, brother. So I hear yeah. we have a new addition uh, to the residence. Uh, you got yourself a brand new vehicle, and uh, and uh, you're having good luck with it, yeah? Yeah, yeah. I uh, I just went and got deeply into debt again. Um, I'm I'm the type that'll drive a vehicle until the wheels fall off of it, and um, I don't like paying truck notes and that sort of thing. But it was getting to the point where my Tacoma, my 2010 Tacoma, was starting to get some mechanical issues. Nothing major. Uh, but I had a couple of long trips coming up, so I said, okay, well, now's the time to get a new one. So, um, to make a long story short, I was too able late. to get out from too, under a... Too late, too late. <laughs> I was able to get out from under a uh, a, uh, a, uh, a pretty bad loan terms on my business vehicle and uh, buy, uh, buy a new one of those and, uh, and buy a new personal truck as well. So, I bought two trucks yesterday. You know, that's really interesting that you say, you know, a business vehicle, because you know you can write that stuff off on your taxes. Yeah, yeah. So uh, very good, very good. It's one hundred percent used for business. You know, one of the things that uh, is really interesting is, you know, I was talking to a friend of mine who got a brand new Harley Davidson, whatever the heck it uh-huh. was, top of the line touring thing, and uh, he was yelling to his kids because the kids were playing in the front yard and the neighborhood kids were around, and you know, the the boy had a brand new riding fire truck kind of thing, you know. And he was yelling to his son to let his friends play with his toys, you know, mm-hmm. and I didn't want to share. So I said, well, you know, that's a really great lesson. Give me the keys to that motorcycle <laughs> yeah, and let, let me, me take, take that motorcycle out. for a ride. He's like, what do you mean? I said, well, it's your toy and you sh- you're telling your kid to share. So share with me. You know, he's set a good example for the young man. Exactly. Right. You know, he started yelling at the kids, get away from that fire truck. So, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, Kelly, uh, this week was very interesting for EMS. The National Association of State EMS Officials put out a national model EMS clinical guidelines this week. And, you know, it's just a little bit of light reading, Kelly. It's only about 373 pages. But I think that one of the things that it does is it really kind of outlines, you know, clinical standing for states to say, this is where we want to be when it comes mm-hmm. to patient care. But I think there's a lot of great things that 
are in this document that we want to chat about. You and I have been, you know, staunch uh, opponents to any particular guideline that doesn't allow paramedics and EMTs to kind of use their critical thinking and problem solving mm-hmm. skills to allow them to, you know, treat the patient, uh, um, you know, with the guidelines of protocol. But I think that one of the things that we saw when this came came out, one was you could use it to, as a doorstop because it's just so thick if you go ahead and, mm-hmm. and uh, uh, print it. But I think that there were a lot of good components that finally, and, and I, and I want to kind of get your thought on this, that finally maybe will allow for good evidence-based medicine when it comes to treatment only because there may be the opportunity to share some data finally on how we're taking care of patients. What do you think about that thought? I think it. I think it's needed. Um, and from my my brief bit of reading on it, I didn't have to go through the. I didn't have time to go through the entire three hundred plus page document. It is big enough to be a doorstop, uh, or or you know jack your vehicle up on if you're working on it. Um, but uh, it, it's um, it strikes me as being um, sufficiently broad that it would offer some really good uniform guidance to medical directors around the country for for formulating their their clinical treatment guidelines you know i've always been leery chris of of uh national or even state uh protocols simply because the the very nature of protocols is that they're written for the dumbest person at your service they're they're literally written for the dumbest person at your service uh in some attempt to make sure that i don't believe that I don't. I, I do. I do. And I'll explain why. Now, this is not every protocol, but most. Most protocols are written for the dumbest guy at your service in an attempt to make sure that the dumbest guy provides at least the same minimum care as the smartest guy. The problem with that is, is that the protocols themselves very often are so poorly written that they do just the opposite. They make the smartest guy at your service have to dumb his care down to that of the level of the dumbest guy. Um, they, they act as a ceiling and not a floor, um, but well-written protocols, uh, which, which generally we don't even consider protocols anyway, that they write them with the idea that they're clinical guidelines, um, serve as a floor. Um, but the problem is, is so few protocols are actually well-written. Uh, the well-written ones do great at, at, at their purpose was making sure that the same, uh, a basic standard of minimum care is, is practiced by all the medics within a system. And the same thing could be said of state guidelines or state protocols writ large. Um, it kind of stifles innovation. Uh, it, it keeps the stellar services from progressing beyond the so-sos and the also-rans. Um, but uh, in reading this document, it occurs to me that, that it's sufficiently broad enough, and it uses the word, the key words that I think are the, the most important words in a, in a protocol, may and consider, um, and, and uh, which will, is, is the key to allowing uh, uh, clinical judgment and critical thinking. It, it gives you options rather than mandate uh, a certain level of care. Um, and, and I kind of like it. Well, from what I've read so far, um, it looks like it's it's going to be sufficiently broad to give uh, medical directors a, a really good uh, template to uh, to uh, write uh, protocols for their own services and, and have somewhat uniform uh, uh, standards of care and, and treatment throughout the country. <sighs> My God, <laughs> I don't even know where to go with that. I mean, first off, you know, I think protocols are written to ensure that there is a baseline for 
you know, care uh, to the patients that are our medical director's patients. Second that thing, is the intention, yes. Second thing that I think it does is it gives the uh, the blanket uh, overview for liability purposes. Because if we allow people who aren't medical uh, doctors to practice medicine uh, without that license, I think what it does is it opens up the organization as well as the medical director for uh, lawsuits and liability. So when you say that the protocols are written for the dumbest person, I, I've worked in some proto, uh, in some systems where the protocols were inc- incredibly progressive. Um, you know, there were uh, things that we were allowed to do that other systems weren't allowed to do. So when you broadly say that protocols are written for the dumbest person in the organization and then the smartest person has to dumb down their medicine – it's like mm-hmm. saying all Italians are in the mafia. I mean, really, you're, 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 you really need a hug, I think. It is. Nancy, Nancy, if you're listening, <laughs> Kelly needs a hug because uh, I think he's a little bit off the mark. And, and you've, been a, you've been a real opponent, and, and we've been talking a long time about protocols. You've been a real opponent to the protocol uh, uh, movement, let's say, in our career field. And I think that... You know, maybe with this document, you may need to reconsider the the thought of um, what protocols really mean. And uh, I think to blanket it like that, uh, you're a little short sighted. So I'm going to be a, I'm going to be an ass about it. But you're a little short sighted. Well, no, I'm I'm being realistic. I am I'm not. I have no problem with well-written protocols, but I have plenty of experience with very poorly written protocols. And it's been my experience that most protocols fit that second model poorly written not well written restrictive not permissive Uh, and the reason they're restrictive and not permissive is that because for the majority of ems in this country it is handled by absentee medical directors who have very little clinical uh oversight and guidance other than a rubber stamp uh, and and a salary uh, and quite often, many of those don't even have a salary, particularly in middle America where it's 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 rural EMS and volunteers and that sort of thing. And they, they help. How many places you uh, how many times have you heard of people that have worked at an agency for years and years and never met their medical director? That's rampant in EMS. That is common in EMS. And the problem with that is, is that when you have a medical director like that, who is just who is basically an absentee, uh, they never feel and they never give any guidance, uh, meaningful guidance to the, the people that they, they oversee, uh, then protocols uh, need to be very restrictive because you don't have any um, – they don't have any faith in the ability of their, their uh, paramedics and EMTs to think critically and to provide proper care. In progressive systems, protocols are much better because the medical director is, is uh, um, involved and active in the organization uh, in doing what a medical director is supposed to do. But that is the exception and the mark of a great, uh, good system, uh, but it's not the norm. It's not the norm. That's a problem with our profession all the way through. Now, you probably had experience with great systems, but, dude, I've had experience with great systems and really, really bad systems. Um, and I would, I'm going to say that the second, uh, the second category, the really, really bad systems, are probably more common. Um, we're kind of taking we're kind of taking a path down, you know, but, where, where we were. But, but but I want to I want to add this. Back though. to the, the, the I want no 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 no. I want to add this because I'm getting the last word here. You're not getting the last word. So <laughs> I, I think what I want to say to you is this: if you have an absentee medical director, 
Is it the medical director's fault that there are crummy paramedics in the system? Or is it the organization's fault that there's crummy paramedicine, paramedics in the system? It, it, you know, the, the, the medical director is going to give his protocol, his guidance to say, this is how I want my patients treated. It's the organization's responsibility to take that playbook and make that playbook work, meaning that I got to make sure that those paramedics are at a level that they can work under those protocols, that they have the skills to work under those protocols, that they have the knowledge to to use their critical thinking and problem-solving skills. That's not a medical director's fault. That's an organization's fault. But anyway... You just couldn't help it. You just couldn't help it, right? You just had to go in. No, it is it is an organization's fault, but they're but they're the the organization's one that hires the medical director, and and I'm placing the blame on the medical director. Um, It's it's the organization's fault for not uh, shelling out the money and the and and uh, the money really uh, paying a medical director for what they're supposed to be doing. Uh, All too many EMS organizations look at the medical director as a rubber stamp. And a signature so that they can order their medications and the stuff that requires a requires a um, a prescription. Um, what are medical directors you know? supposed to be doing? So they're not paying the medical directors. <laughs> this is going to be one of those you irritate the heck out of me shows. What are medical directors supposed to be doing that they're not doing because they're not getting paid? What do you think their responsibility is in an organization? Their responsibility is is education, training, um, oversight development of clinical guidelines and protocols that are current and evidence-based. Uh, and, and that is actually a, a fairly uncommon thing. So then uh, sadly enough, so um, then, but where's Chris, the organi- let, me, let me give you, an, let me give you an example. You know, until very recently you had medical directors in Texas that were medical directors for over 100 ambulance services. Now, they started to put a stop to that sort of thing. But there's one particular medical director for a number of uh, small and fairly medium-sized uh, EMS agencies that got paid $1,200 a month every month for over 100 ambulance services. Now, you can't tell me that the, a guy who is a medical director for 100 different ambulance services um, is active with any of them. All he is is a medical uh, is a rubber stamp, um, and he's pulling in one point two million a year for his signature, and that's all they're getting for it. Now, um, is that is that the norm? No, but it's way more common than it should be. Um, but what you're saying, and, and it's is- not so much on the medical director; it's, it's agencies are unwilling to to uh, to make their medical director or go the extra mile to make sure that their medical director is the guiding force behind uh, the the care provided. And I would think this. Snack I would think up. I would think in your scenario that if somebody has a hundred EMS, pardon me, if someone has a hundred EMS systems and they're working under the same medical director, they're probably working under the same protocols as well. And mm-hmm. one of the things that I think you're going to do is if you have a hundred systems, you're going to outline the protocols, you're going to outline your philosophies, you're going to outline, you know, how you want your paramedics trained, you're going to outline uh, a CQI process, possibly. But now it comes down to the organizations to make that work. If it's true in your scenario, and I know that it's true, I mean, because there are systems out there, Kelly, that, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, there are absentee medical directors. I agree with you 100%. But in those systems, 
Is it the medical director's responsibility or is it my responsibility as the leader of that organization to make sure that our paramedics deliver the highest quality of patient care, that they're educated, that the CQI process is driving that education, and that the patients are receiving the highest quality of patient care? It is your responsibility. So where does the, the medical is, is where how is the common, medic- how common is it that agencies actually uh, agency directors uh, actually, two different arguments uh, two different actually, arguments okay all right so yes it is that the agency director's responsibility and to my mind I think the the operations manager and the medical director ought to be about equal on the on the organizational I chart. disagree um, I disagree uh, or the medical director be at the top of the organizational chart. Here's the here's but in too many places the, the medical director is subordinate to uh, to the operations manager. Um, you never mix but, you never mix clinical and operations never. Well, because you know here's the thing: you get an operational manager whose job is to make sure that he's meeting response times, that he's meeting contractual agreements, that he's meeting, and then the first time things need to get cut, what do you think they're cutting? What are they cutting, Kelly? You've seen it before in organizations. They're cutting clinical education. Mm-hmm. Oh, they're, yeah. they're cutting, you know, yeah. not getting the best equipment that they can. So I think that you have an operational director who's in charge of the operations of the system. Very, very important role. You have a clinical director who's in charge of the clinical aspects of the system, but has the medical director's authority and empowerment to make sure that he works his guidelines. Well, that's the way it ought to be, but. All too often, we have people who are satisfied with pulses and patches and hire accordingly uh, and educate accordingly. Um, but I, I let us off on the tangent. I will, I'll take the, the responsibility for that. We were talking about NSIMSO's uh, proposed national uh, clinical guidelines. I'm not, talking, um, I'm not talking to you for the rest of the show. <laughs> but I, like I was saying, is, is they actually have um, – good data in here and it's sufficiently broad uh, that it would could be an excellent template for those broad permissive progressive guidelines uh, that that I think should be uh, implemented in in ambulance services and EMS agencies across the country uh, not restrictive uh, but progressive um, this is an excellent jump off point for them uh, case in point you've got some things in here like um, they've got, uh, their refusal guidelines, just scrolling through their refusal gu- guidelines, um, uh, make, uh, make very much of the point, uh, of, of demonstrating, uh, mental capacity and, and decision-making capacity. And they're not prescriptive. Like if your patient is intoxicated, you can't get a refusal, which you see written quite often yeah. in, in protocols. Right. Um, instead it says that, okay, uh, alcohol intoxication and drug intoxication may compromise mental capacity, but it doesn't say this salt, this, this boilerplate patient must be awake, alert and oriented times four for you to get a refusal. It, it leaves it. It's sufficiently broad enough that it says you must as a clinician determine that the patient has adequate decision-making capacity before you can obtain a refusal. Right. Uh, that leaves it very broad, very open to good critical thinking and clinical judgment. Um, the same, the same being said of their, their airway management protocol as well. Uh, they basically use the airway continuum. Only go as, as invasive as you must right. uh, to adequately control the airway, and here's your outcome. Um, and they, they don't, you know, it's not, a, it's not limited to a, a device or a particular procedure. Um, it still leaves 
endotracheal intubation in there, but for those patients who cannot be efficiently managed by other means. So that that part of it that I've read, uh, and, and if the rest of this document reads the same way, uh, I'm going to be a fan of it because it's 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 you know it's what it needs to be yeah. rather than a you shall you must uh, and do no more than these things type uh, of protocols that you t- see typically written uh, at the statewide and, and the national level. Yeah, and I think that one of the things that's really good about this as well is is it uses the word guidelines. And, and yes. I think that that's where it is. And, and we've talked about that before, but they're kind of set up the same. And if you haven't seen them, go ahead and check it out. Maybe we get Sarah to put this up in the, in the show notes mm-hmm. so people can check them out. But the way that it's set up is, you know, let's say the universal care guideline, which is the first one that you see. First thing it comes out with aliases, you know, so people mm-hmm. will call it patient assessment, patient history, patient physical. So right there, it gives people the opportunity to say, oh, this is our physical assessment protocol. Then it goes yeah. to patient care goals. What is the purpose of this protocol, which I think is really interesting? Next, it goes into patient presentation, which gives you inclusion and exclusion criteria, which is always something now that you can, when you're, when you're trying to develop your working diagnosis, it gives you kind of a parameter to say that this patient should be included into this protocol. On the other side, it would say that uh, this person, this patient should be excluded from this protocol. Mm-hmm. Then it takes you down patient management. It gives you the assessment of what the patient uh, how you should outline that patient and the things that you should consider. And, you know, that's where it kind of gets into this whole aspect of how are you going to manage this patient? Then you're going to have a treatment and intervention section. You're going to have patient safety considerations, mm-hmm. which I think is really awesome as well. And then as we start to get a little bit deeper, there is some educational pearls of wisdom in here, Kelly, that I think really kind of gives you the opportunity to say, you know what, this is why I need to know this. And, uh, you know, in this universal precautions protocol, it talks about pediatrics, you know, use a weight-based assessment tool, geriatrics, Mm -hmm. although they're defined as various ages, the geriatric population is generally defined as those over 65. So it gives you some opportunity now to get some clinical education. But here, more importantly, One of the things that I think this is really awesome is that there's a quality improvement and performance measures section in it. One Uh of the things that you and I have talked about at nauseum is the fact that where is the evidence when it comes to what we're doing as EMS providers is working. And there really isn't out there. But if we're following the same guideline and we've had... Uh, um, we've had Nick on before talking about the EMS compass program. Mm-hmm. He even puts those EMS compass measures into this document, which now say, this is what we want to track. And if we're all tracking the same information, I think that the eventuality is going to be an X amount of time frame down the road. We're going to have some good data that says airway management is effective in X amount of patients in these uh-huh. types of patients, X amount of time. And, and I think that that's where these guidelines hit a home run. Yeah. And, you know, one one odd conceit that EMS has is, is uh, with the, the ver- uh, variability in, in, you know, scope of practice and, and, and treatment guidelines is we act like uh, a CHFer in Austin, Texas is a different 
uh, critter than a CHF or in Albuquerque, New Mexico or Boston, Massachusetts. Um, the treatment for them varies so much with the agency. Um, and what we need to do is, is adopt some broad evidence-based guidelines. Uh, and the way to do that is, is use the data we've collected from places like the EMS Compass Project. Uh, so the We'll have consensus definitions uh, and consensus guidelines. Uh, ultimately, you know, EMS, uh, the, the saying goes is that, that uh, EMS is at its heart a local issue. Um, but I think that more depends not so much on treatment guidelines, but the level of service uh, and the model of uh and the model of service uh, that the community chooses, not so much in how the care is actually rendered. Uh, that needs to be as uniform as possible. Um, but uh, well, I say but, it's not but, it's and. Um, uh, this document actually incorporates that kind of stuff. Uh, and, and as we get more guidelines, more data, um, we can refine these. And, and hopefully the 2019 or 2020 or, or beyond versions are, are going to be even more uh, specific and guideline or and science-based uh, so that we know exactly what we're doing um, is working uh, and it's beneficial and it's necessary. Uh, no more comparing apples to oranges. We'll be comparing apples to apples and seeing the efficacy of, of, uh, of what we're doing or the lack thereof. So we encourage you guys to read these guidelines. Uh, and we're going to put up a, a thing in the show notes. I wrote a column some time back uh, called uh, The Two Most Important Words in an EMS Protocol. Uh, it's may and consider. Um, read that and read the guidelines in the context of that and see if they don't fit those criteria uh, that allow us to pr practice good clinical medicine and, and use our clinical judgment uh, and, and engage in critical thinking for the better, uh, betterment of our patients. But hey, that's what we think. We'd like to hear what you think about the NASIMSO uh, National EMS Clinical Guidelines. Email us at the show at ems1.com. Don't forget to rate us on iTunes. And for myself and co-host Chris Ciballero, thanks for tuning in to Inside EMS. We'll catch you guys next week.